Hey folks, if you're dealing with sleep issues or stress, anxiety, dealing with pain management even, cutting down on inflammation, pretty much all the things I'm dealing with, I really encourage you to check out cocanacare.com. They make ultra-concentrated, terpene-rich CBD oil derived from all-natural, high-quality industrial hemp. It's legal in all 50 states. It's USDA certified 100% organic. It doesn't contain any heavy metals, no pesticides, nothing like that, and it doesn't contain THC. So if you've heard a lot about CBD but not know you know, a brand to trust to try it, I really encourage you to check them out. They're being gracious enough to support us during this time, so I'd love it if you went and supported them. You can find out more at cocanacare.com, and you can also find a link in the show notes. You know, normally on a sailboat, you're out there at sea, it starts raining, and you're sort of like, ah, you got to always wear your foul weather gear. You know, you're usually trying to hide from the rain. Not me. When it was raining, I was up there dancing around, trying to collect every little last thing and just loving it. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we hear stories of adventure from every corner of the planet. We interview all sorts of folks who are using their sport to explore the world around them and give you the inspiration you need to get out there and have some fun. Hey folks, thanks for tuning in today. You know, this episode's so cool because Jerome really, I mean, it's something we all dream about doing, just this around the world trip. You know, there's nothing bigger. There's nothing bigger for humans to do other than to go in space. And in fact, he shares this unbelievable stat, this this fact in the uh, episode that just blows your mind about space. So be listening for that. It's pretty early on. But anyway, we all dream about, you know, doing something this big, and Jerome did it, and he's so approachable, such a great storyteller. I'm sure he would love to hear from you if you want to reach out. I definitely encourage you to get his book, Sailing into Oblivion, The Solo Nonstop Voyage of the Mighty Sparrow, which is the name of his 32-foot sailing vessel, which is pretty small to do this. He also has a great YouTube channel that you can... uh just kind of see you know, like what his boat looks like, hear some of his stories, see some of the footage from the experience, and also go to his website, fifthcape.com, and you can see his map, and it's just it's just awesome. I don't know. I've always wanted to do something like this, but on a bicycle. Y'all hear it over and over again. I love to bike tour. Also, just a reminder, I'm in the middle of moving right now, cross-country, so uh, if, if something crazy happened and I'm not mentioning it in this uh, in this intro, that's why, because I'm recording this you know, about a week and a half, two weeks early, but yeah, forgive me if I'm not mentioning some crazy news event that's happening, but that is why, so enjoy the episode, and uh, yeah, you'll be hearing from us on Thursday. All right, folks, welcome to today's episode. We got a great episode, and in fact, there's a lot that I don't know about his story, so I'm I'm pretty excited to learn, pretty excited to just kind of be right here alongside with you, listeners, and, and learning about Jerome Rand's story. So, Jerome, welcome to the show, man. Thank you very much, Mason. It's, uh, it's, it's an honor to be here. You know, like we were saying just a few minutes ago, I, you know, I'm preparing the boat right now to sail from South Carolina up to Maine. And before I go, one of the things I always do is sort of scope different podcasts. And I sort of randomly came across this one. Uh, it was probably a couple of weeks ago, but I've been listening ever since. And uh, I'm, I'm on here with some pretty heavy hitters. That's for sure. It's, it's really, really enjoyable. Hey man, you're right up there with him, dude. This is to me, this what you're doing is just it's it's equivalent to people climbing Everest or or, or some of the even the lesser known huge mountains. It's just so out of my experience that it's terrifying, but it's also really intriguing. And you were mentioning before too, like it's a fleeting thought of everyone that gets in a boat or sails that to go around the world, but you know, you're doing it. It's you're, you're right up there with them, man. So I, I appreciate you though, saying that it's, uh, we work hard to make the show happen, but so, so you mentioned going from South Carolina to Maine. Is that where you are right now? You're in, you're in South Carolina. Yep. I'm sitting on the boat as we speak at a little tiny Marina, uh, just outside of Buford, South Carolina. And oh, man. yeah, 
at the end of this month, uh, I'll be headed right up there, back up to Rockland, Maine. So I head offshore, usually takes about 10 days or so. And uh, I may actually be taking a crew member with me this time. And that'd be the first since, uh, I don't know, three years or so that I have not done a sailing trip solo. Holy cow, man. And it, you know, I hate to immediately tell a story, but the only memory I have about Buford, I was there one time. I was actually on a bike tour going up the East Coast from Florida to Maine, and I met a doctor riding kind of his nightly circuit around Buford, and yeah, and and he he we just got to talking, and we stopped at a gas station to like get some Gatorade, and he goes, "Hey man, I'd love to have you over for dinner. My wife and I would love to have you over." Um, he goes, she's not home right now, but here's my address and here's my keys to my house. Go hang out at my house. <laughs> my dogs are outside. They're totally cool. He goes, go just get, grab a beer and chill on the couch till I get home. And I pull up to this beautiful mansion on the intercoastal waterway and get the key and just open his front door and have a seat. And, it was, and he came home like 30 minutes later. It was the weirdest but coolest experience. And we had a great time, but that's that's the only really thought that comes to mind about that area. But seems to be a lot of nice people that that southern hospitality man it's uh nothing compares to it you know i i always felt that when i was doing the appalachian trail i mean geez uh, you could get rides everybody was helping so many people had food and you know it sort of seemed and i'm from the north but it sort of seemed the further north you got the less that was uh that was happening that's <laughs> So I love this stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that area is so gorgeous. Gosh. So, man, I, I you know I kind of want to go all the way back. Like you know, you say you grew up in the or you were from the north. Did you grow up in the north? Did you grow up doing things like this? And if not, like what happened in your life to make you you know first do the Appalachian Trail than this? Did it did it start off slow or was it just a kind of all at once thing? Uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, a, as a kid, you know, I was sort of the one who was less apt to go and join, you know, the soccer team or, or any of that stuff. I, I was the one who was, you know, walking around in the forest or, or more than anything, being from Michigan, I was on the, the lake shore, you know, pulling stones over and looking for crayfish and all that sort of stuff. So I, I think I've always had sort of an affinity or a, a curiosity uh, with, with mother nature and what's going on. And I, I think I've always sort of held that as far as sort of getting out there and really immersing myself in it. I, I have to say that most of my inspirations really come from books that I've read, you know, the Appalachian trail. Once I read a walk in the woods by Bill Bryson, like that was Mm -hmm. it. I, I knew I had to do it. And, and then, you know, as I got into my sort of sailing career, in my twenties, that was when, you know, I started, you know, every boat that I got on, cause we used to sail, deliver people's yachts from one place to another, but every boat had about four or five of the same books. And there were all these old books back, you know, they were written in the sixties and seventies about these guys attempting to take a boat around the world without stopping. And, you know, it's only been about 50 years or so since the first one was actually completed. And, I don't know. I mean, you know, these 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 are titles like God Forsaken Sea and, you know, uh, you know, obviously the perfect storm, things like that. Those those sort of titles. But for some reason, they just I was so curious. I, I wanted to know and I wanted to experience what these guys were experiencing out in that wild, wild ocean. Wow, that's 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 actually really cool to hear. It was books because, you know. I don't know. It wasn't, you know what I mean? Like that's so accessible to so many people. You can just order a book yeah, somewhere yeah. or find it at a library and that can change your life. Well, and it, you know, it was kind of interesting because, you know, previous to reading, uh, I think it was God Forsaken Sea was, or our voyage for Mad Men. That was the one I think they really hooked me in. And that was about the first race that they tried to do this. But previous to that, I was totally oblivious to, to anything you know, about sailing all the way around the world. It was, you know, it was just something I didn't know. And, you know, I, I think in, in sort of the adventure world, you know, you, you mentioned the the name Mount Everest and everybody knows ex- exactly what that is. And I still, you know, to this day when I'm, you know, doing presentations and things, there's a lot of people that come up to me afterwards and say, I had no idea, no idea people even do what you just did. 
And it's, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, it is. It's it's a little known adventure, but it's also one of the craziest ones you can do. I'm not going to lie. Personally, I love those types of things where you realize maybe there might not be even a book about it yet, or there might not be a real, you know, way to do it. I definitely, maybe because once I start getting into the bigger adventures, I, I'm, I'm kind of towards the bottom of the list, the, the list as far as like ability and, and like, I don't know. Hey. you know what I'm saying? So it's like something like this sounds awesome. Well, I tell you, I mean that listening to some of the stuff of your old trips from going from Alaska down, do you go all the way down to the Florida Keys? No, I just went home, which was central Florida. Now that I think central, about it, I oh, wish I yeah. would have gone all the way down, but going home was cool too. That's pretty ridiculous. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Man, that's I t- what are you talking about? I'm on ground the whole time. You know what I'm saying? Like, I know. I can there's get so off many. And walk. You're in the middle of, literally in the middle of nowhere. Like, you want to talk about wilderness? I think it often gets overlooked how how much water is wilderness. You feel like, oh, I'm out in the woods. I'm so alone. You're really never that far from other people anywhere on land unless you're in the middle of the Sahara or something or, or northern true. Canada. But in the ocean, man, you, you had to have been so far from people. I mean, that's that's wild to me. I, I think for uh, during some times in the Pacific and such, um, you know, the closest human beings to me were probably on the space station when they would pass overhead. Cause I, I think the space station is like 200 miles up or something. And I'd be, you know, when you get into the middle of the Pacific, there's a, um, it's called point Nemo. And I think you're 1600 miles away from the nearest point of land. And that's, that's the biggest open expanse on the planet. That is a wild perspective. I've never, that thought has never crossed my mind. That is that is nuts, but that would total that would be true. And you see them, you see them all the time down there, because it, you know, um, once you get way deep into the southern hemisphere, there's no more airplanes because none of the routes fly down there, and mm. so the only thing you ever really see are satellites. And the space station is, you know, it's as bright as Venus, and so you see it every time it passes over. That is. That is incredible, man. I can't imagine the feeling. It has to be similar to the feeling of being in space in a lot of ways, knowing there's no human near you anywhere within, you know, potentially thousands of miles. That's, that's crazy. I've never felt that. But so, so, so you know, t- to go back to, you know, you, you were an adventurous kid, you read these books, um, you read the, that one uh, by Bill, is it Bill Bryce? The, I, I know I can picture the cover with the bear. Yeah, yeah. A walk in the woods. Walk in the woods, exactly. And, and so you read that and, and you were immediately like, I got to go do the AT or how did that work? And what was that process like for for wherever stage in life you were? Well, so at that point, I was living and working down in the Caribbean at a, uh, a place called the Bitter End Yacht Club on uh, Virgin Gorda. So that's in the British Virgin Islands. I was running their water sports department, you know, pretty much one of the the best jobs you can have you know uh, almost kind of like being the king of the beach bums down there and oh, wow. uh, but it's it's also very intense you know there are a lot of times where it's 16 hour days and then you know wake up in the middle of the night to go rescue somebody on a boat sort of stuff and after five years i just needed a break i was i was so burnt out i i was absolutely cooked and you know i had been thinking about the appalachian trail for a while and I used to, I mean, I used to have it on audiobook and I would listen to it, you know, when I was falling asleep. And finally, I just said, OK, this is going to be the year. And it was um, 2012 when I finally flew up to Michigan, did a little training for a month and uh, got got used to being in the cold. So I'm up way up in northern Michigan and, you know, got to acclimatize because. Um, you know, early on, I think I started March 2nd for the trail. And so I was, you know, expecting to be in snow, you know, in the Smokies and all that sort of stuff. And um, so I acclimatized and then I head on down and I, I set off and it was just, yeah, it was, it was sort of just a break. Um, I, I don't want to say I felt like I was in the rat race, but I definitely felt like there was something missing in my life and and a, a nice long walk in the woods, a little bit of adventure, uh, was definitely in need. Was it? Did it fulfill that that need that you had? Uh, well, it, I mean, I I took to the trail uh, uh, like a, a bee to honey. I mean, it was it was awesome. I I was 
camping, you know, pretty much alone most nights. Um, I went and, you know, I would get into camp. I'd make a little bonfire. You know, I'd cook my dinner. I'd read books. You know, normally I didn't even go to sleep until maybe 11 o'clock at night. And I'd wake up and I I was probably one of the happier people uh, walking that year. And it was it was actually kind of funny because as I got further and further north up into Maine, I started to see the southbounders. And, you know, that year, the the early part of the year was warm and dry, but the tail end was really rainy. And I would walk into these huts and these southbounders who had only been on the trail for a week or two looked absolutely miserable. I mean, on the edge of just abandoning everything. And I'd sort of come bouncing in like happy to be all wet and just you know trying to live live my last few weeks on the trail to the to the fullest and you know i remember giving a lot of pep talks uh towards the end of me like it's gonna get better don't worry it's gonna get better but you know i i i just loved i i tried to suck up every second of it and once I finished that, I just knew, I knew at that point immediately that it was, it was time to, to move on to a bigger thing. But, you know, when you finish the Appalachian Trail, there's, there's really, you don't have anything. You've got a dirty beard and you've got an old backpack, but I didn't have a job. I didn't have any money. And so I needed to come up with a plan, but I, I knew for sure that I was going to try to do the, the sail around the world. It had sort of been sitting in the back of my mind for for a long time, but I never thought there would ever be an opportunity. And, you know, just, I, I didn't think it was actually ever going to happen, but you know, the solitude of being on the trail gave me quite a bit of confidence. So I sort of knew, okay, I can deal with isolation. That's not too big a deal. And really though, it was, it was the fact that I felt this huge amount of accomplishment and sort of this purpose and just, I, I felt absolutely amazing that I had taken this, you know, four and a half months and I had used them wisely. I mean, it really, I really felt like, like I had done and made the right decision to go and do that trail. And, you know, even when it's over and all you have is memories, you know, that's, that's, that's all you get anyway. So it was, uh, it was like, all right, let's move on to the next, let's make the next one even bigger. So much good stuff in there. So great to hear that it was such a positive experience. I know that it can be a, a huge mental. Oh, it like, can be brutal. Yeah, exactly. Like, it can be so brutal, but to just really be enjoying it. I definitely feel like that when I'm on a bike tour. Like, there's these hard days, but when everything clicks for like the afternoon and you got that afternoon light and you get to cook dinner at camp before it's pitch black and just, it's just, I don't know, there's nothing better than that to me when it all clicks and it's totally worth those moments that you get every once in a while to, to go through everything else. So, so you, you get done with the AT, you got this idea, you know, the AT has books written on it, obviously, cause you read one, but it, I mean, there's so much guidance when it comes to doing something like that. Cause it, even though it is niche, it is still fairly popular. But with this thing, man, I've read tons of places that like four or five people have, have done this, what you did in the, the size boat that you've done it. Was that the original plan was to do something just totally really unknown for the most part? Uh, you know, I, I didn't really think of it too much uh, as that. You know, I mean, I, I wasn't trying to, to do any any records or anything uh, of that sort. It was really just I wanted to live that sort of adventure. And I, I wanted to I wanted to be able to be like, yes, I, I sailed all the way around the world. Um the size of the boat really just came down to, you know, um, my budget because like I said, I, I had a little bit of money saved, but I, I wanted to get it done within, you know, the next five years from finishing the trail. And so, you know, I knew I could work for three years, but I'd need a year to get the boat and prep it and get everything ready. And then on that fifth year I'd take off. And so that was sort of the timeline that I had set up and, the boat that I bought, the Westdale 32, you know, this is an old American-made boat. It was built in 1975, and there's en- enough of them around that they're not very expensive. So I was able to pick this one up in that budget and then also be able to, you know, live for a year while I sorted it all out, pay for all the food and supplies and everything, and then basically load the boat and go for it. 
obviously I wasn't spending any money once I was out on the ocean, which was good. But uh, I didn't have much either. I pretty much broke the bank when I did it. But, you know, I think it was money well spent for sure. <laughs> well, if, if if memories are your uh, goal, man, you, you obviously made some. I can't even imagine. Uh, you know, I, I hate to admit this, but I, I, being from Florida, growing up in the water, I've never sailed. And kind of crazy. You know, we, we lived, it lived Not inland, once. but still, I, I kind of, I don't know anything about it, to be honest. Like, what kinds of things were you looking for leading up to this? Obviously, the boat, but what, what kind of other things for such a long journey that that you would need? You know what I'm saying? Like, obviously, you know, things to pump water, right. food, the basics, but was there anything else? Like, uh, you know, not too much. I mean, that was through through sort of these books that I, I read, you know, from the 1960s and stuff. The, the, the old time sailors, those guys really kept emphasizing simplicity. And so, you know, it makes a lot of sense. If you're going to be out in a place where you can't get repairs done, things like that, you know, you got to keep the boat as simple as humanly possible. You know, I, I set it up with very few electronics because electronics usually break down at sea, especially if you're out there for that long. And so, you know, I had the old school stuff. I had a sextant on board and I was using charts and things like that. You know, modern day, you can you can cross an ocean with a, an iPad without any problem at all. But wow. if that iPod decides to break, then all of a sudden you got to go back to the old. Um, and that, again, was also born out of the budget. You know, I, I had to keep Keep things, you know, the fancier stuff is is really expensive. You know, you slap marine in front of any sort of technology and it doubles the price. So I basically <laughs> wanted to, and it really does. <laughs> I needed at least one really good brand new set of sails. The rest of them I bought used, but I have a sewing machine on board and stuff. Um, you know, I don't want to get too much into the details because I could go on for an hour, but I did have some solar panels put on and uh, I had like a backup battery bank and stuff, and I had a computer which I could download weather, and I had the Garmin inReach so that I could, you know, send my daily post to my mom so that she uh, knew that I was still floating and not not missing at sea. But that was, you know, that was sort of the basics, and the the rest of it really is just food and then spare parts here and there, whatever you think might break if you can afford it, get a second one and. Uh, and that's pretty much it. And then you you basically set off and, and head out because the actual route is not difficult sailing as far as, you know, navigating through it. I mean, you're it's open ocean sailing. So, you know, I didn't need to have a million different charts. I mean, I, I was primarily I think I used 13 different charts on the whole trip. And, um, you know, it's 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 one of those things where, again, you just want to keep it as simple as humanly possible. You know, going from something like the AT, where to me it feels like, you know, okay, I might not leave with everything I need, or maybe I take too much, and, you know, I'm going to be passing through towns and stuff like that. You know, I can kind of adjust my kit. For, for this, it almost feels like you don't want to have that feeling in the back of your mind when you take off, like, oh, crap, I forgot my phone charger or something like You're that. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> is that how it is, or, or is there more forgiveness in kind of being able to go to ports and stuff than I realize? Uh, the route that I was doing, no, there really isn't. I mean, and I is I when I set off from Gloucester, it was basically straight out to sea. And then the next time I was within, you know, a hundred miles of of civilization was south of New Zealand. So that's no way. Uh, maybe eighteen thousand miles away. And I was only there for a little bit as I passed underneath it and then off to the Pacific. I mean, you know the option of sailing to, uh, you know, Australia or Cape Town, South Africa, it was there, but you know, it wasn't, you know, I was, I was almost 400 miles South of, of Cape Town when I passed underneath it. So it's not, it's not a quick hitchhike into town. It's, uh, you know, more of a four or five day venture to get, you know, back to a place. Cause you know, once you get away from the, the East coast of the United States, there's really no more Coast Guard out there. So if you're in trouble, you you better be able to deal with it. And, you know, that that really is is hugely uh, pertinent when you get into the Southern Ocean, because there's there's literally nothing down there. 
And I think I think the four months that I spent, you know, basically below all of the continents, I only saw four boats and two of them were fishing boats off of New Zealand. <laughs> Was that hard for you to deal with mentally? Or uh, you no, enjoy it? I, I enjoy it. I mean, I, you know, it, it definitely gets a bit boring at times and such. But and and, you know, when when the weather is spectacular and or there's, you know, beautiful stars, huge sunset, all that sort of stuff. That's that's when I always wish there was another person to, you know, just sit and chat with and, and show them how beautiful it is and that much. But I I can sort of deal with the isolation as long as I know that eventually it's going to end. Then then I'm I'm happy to, you know, sort of bull through it till the end. And it also, you know, it, it gives you time to sort of contemplate and and also just be able to sort of really live in that moment and not miss a whole lot. You know, you, you take in so much when, when everything's you know, quiet and there's no conversations. I mean, not that I didn't talk to myself quite a bit, but, you know, when you have another person there, it, it's easy to sort of miss out on a few things that are going on around you. I mean, I can't imagine how many incredible sunsets and sunrises you saw and night skies. I mean, you're, you're in the probably the darkest corners of the planet probably looked unreal at times oh there there was one in particular so you know you go to the north north atlantic you go to the equator south atlantic and then you go to the indian ocean and i was about in the middle of the indian ocean when uh tropical cyclone irving came sweeping down from the north and it, it i was able to just cut in front of it and sort of clipped me it got a little hairy for one night but the interesting thing was for the next two days, it was sort of like as that cyclone kept going south, it took with it every bit of moisture out of the air. And it was coinciding perfectly with the new moon. So it was pitch black. And I remember coming up on deck and the whole boat was lit up just like it would with maybe a half moon or or more. And I sort of looking around thinking what, what's going on here and then i realized it's just the stars were twice as bright as i'd ever seen them in my life and you know it's like all right down below make a huge pot of coffee i'm gonna be up for a while and <laughs> and they're all sort of you know different stars too you still had a few of the normal constellations to the north but the rest of it's all you know the southern cross and all that sort of stuff and yeah it was it was pretty miraculous i i'll never forget that i can i can actually I can picture it right now exactly how lit up it was. It was really amazing. That's so amazing. I mean, you're you're right. Make a pot of coffee, stay up. It's it's a sight to behold. I I posted a picture not long ago of like a long exposure shot, and someone commented on it and said, you know, I haven't seen. I live in like downtown Boston. I haven't seen the stars in months, and I think like how could you just do that? You know what I'm saying? Like, especially after having the experience of seeing, I just couldn't go that long without seeing the stars. And, you know, I, there's so many, I mean, all that to say, I, I'm sure such a small amount of people have ever seen it to the degree that you saw them. That's, that's incredible. Wow. Well, it is. I mean, it's a, it's a crime that, you know, all these people who live in these big cities never see them. I mean, they, they ought to at least take, you know, one day every year, and, you know, shut all the lights off for about a half an hour and then turn them back on. That way, at least people can get a glimpse. But, uh, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know what that would do to the power grid. Who knows? Maybe that's not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bit of a yeah. surge. Yeah, for real. So, so, you know, that this person actually was from Boston and you left from Massachusetts as well, right? Yeah, I left from Gloucester, Massachusetts. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's obviously it's it's sort of a port of call for the Andrea Gale, which was the main focus of the Perfect Storm. And, you know, Gloucester has this really colorful history. And it's just, you know, for me, it's just the most amazing fishing port. You know, it's just it's unbelievable. But it also has uh, a bit of a history for solo sailing. So Alfred Johnson took off in 1876 on a 22-foot wooden dory, and he sailed from Gloucester to Liverpool, England. And it took 66 days, and he was, I believe, the first person to ever cross an ocean solo um, ever. And so he was sort of the great-grandfather of just trying to go out there and do it. And I, I don't even know how he made it. I, as, I couldn't imagine that voyage there, but 
Um, you know, two decades later, Joshua Slocum went and his last port of call in the United States was Gloucester, Massachusetts. And then he set off and, and did his three year circumnavigation to become the first person to solo sail around the world. Um, and so it's got a bit of history and I, you know, kind of felt like I wanted to add to it a little bit. And, uh, we've, we've had, had some family that lived out there. My grandparents had a house out there for a while and, and so it's just kind of I figured it was it was it was a perfect spot to take off. Plus, it was really close to Rockland, Maine, where I was doing all the work on the boat and uh, it made it for an easy exit. Carrying on the tradition. And so I saw when you left, I saw this video of like you saying goodbye to everybody and you seemed so calm. Was that how you spent your time? Did you feel pretty at ease with this whole experience or is, are you kind of always on guard, always a little bit tense, right? How do you handle sailing uh, oh, around that, the world by yourself? That one, <laughs> that video, that's all just editing. There's the, okay. I was, I, I was cut out all the rat. tears. <laughs> oh, well, I was there for, for like three days, you know, just little problems kept coming up and, you know, there was a, an oil leak and then there was a diesel leak and I, you know, there were so many things happening, you know, the sales, something was wrong and, you know, to the, point where I, I forgot my one thing that I really wanted to do is go to a doctor and get some, you know, like a broad spectrum antibiotic. And I forgot to do that. I was in such a rush. And, um, you know, cause, cause in October, it was October 3rd, we're still in the hurricane season. And so one of the things that makes this trip unique from, from 90% of the other, you know, circumnavigations that have ever been done is leaving from the east coast you have to cut right across the hurricane path and you know we had hurricane irma maria and i left maybe a week after hurricane jose passed by and you know even when i was out there i was i was still sort of ducking and dodging a little bit so it was one of those things where you know i was wondering if i was actually going to do it and then i took off and you have to just sort of hope for the best because you know, the hurricane season is one thing, but then you have to get to Cape Horn down at the tip of South America, you know, some 200 days later. But you want to do it as fast as you can, because as winter comes into the Southern Ocean, things get, you know, so dangerous. It's it's not even worth being down there. And being so far from land, it must have been challenging to... First of all, why why stay so far from the coast? Is there a reason for that? And also, it was probably hard to just tell where you were. I mean, it just all looks the same, of course, but just it didn't probably kind of like now. Does it, you people can't tell which day it is half the time? So it's right. it's all relative, yeah. you know. <laughs> it's true, it's true. Well, you know, out there, it's kind of funny because on the Appalachian Trail, I would lose what day it was of the week all the time. Never really cared. Didn't matter to me. Um, you know, I, I didn't even like to wear a watch, but out there, you know, because you're navigating, you constantly are, you know, every, I think it was every four hours I was logging in my logbook and, and all that sort of stuff. And because I was, you know, doing a little bit of celestial navigation and stuff. So I was, I was pretty on point on what day it was and everything like that. Um, but, but it, you know, Part of the reason that you you are so far offshore is it just makes the route faster because you really want to do everything as sort of straight line, so to speak, as possible. And the other thing, the closer you are to land, the closer you are to danger, there's more traffic, all that sort of stuff. Fishing fleets, you know, most of the fishing fleets operate on the, um, the continental shelf. And once you get past that, you know, you'll see you'll see some huge container ships and oil tankers and stuff, but those those stick to pretty direct routes between you know the Mediterranean and New York and the Panama Canal and West Africa and stuff. So, you know, you can go. Like I said, I went months without seeing a single. That is wild, man. And so, you know, the the, the whole effort was to do this nonstop. Yeah, yeah. My my goals were basically. I wanted to leave from the United States. I wanted to do it on an American boat and I didn't want to anchor, tie off, stop in any way. Um, I wanted to do it without any sponsorship and I wanted to do it unassisted. And I basically, I succeeded in all those except for one. And we can, we can get in that as it sort of comes up, but those were my goals for this, this sort of adventure. 
Yeah. So, so being a, you know, I'd love to know which one it was and hopefully I naturally bring it up. That's a nice little challenge for me as an interviewer. So <laughs> no, um, uh, yeah, find, find the nugget. <laughs> yeah. Find the nugget for real. You know, you know, being a small boat, you know, and I know that was budget, but also, but I imagine like storage is limited too. Was it hard to store literally 271 days worth of everything you needed on that boat or, or did you find that to be pretty well? And how did, how did that planning go? Were you able to kind of plan it well and, and hit your targets with food and everything? I, I did pretty well. Well, as far as fitting everything I needed on board, uh, and I actually, you know, ended up having having more available space than I thought, um, and that would really come into play uh, once I was about south of Australia when I started taking food inventories and realizing that I I had not brought enough food by any any uh, shadow of a doubt, and I you know I thought okay we could probably make it in the beginning. And then, you know, another, you know, a few weeks ago by do another inventory and I'd, I'd be like, okay, this is going to get a little tight. And so I started rationing, you know, food basically from about day, you know, maybe day 150, I started to ration things down and all the way across the Pacific rationing. And it just sort of became more and more severe as I, as I went. And, uh, and actually, you've already found the nugget because I, I ended up yes. having to <laughs> I, way to go, Mason. Not bad. Um, I, I ended up having to sail to a bay outside of the Falkland Islands and have a food drop brought out. So a boat came out and they hucked a bunch of boxes full of food over to me. And uh, and I was able to continue on from there. But they were they were really cool about it. They didn't you know, normally if you're going to go and buy things from a country, you got to check in, go through customs, do all that stuff. And my, my dad had sort of explained what was going on and they said, no problem. Just if he can get here, then we'll toss the food over. He's just got to pay for it. And so I didn't even have to anchor or anything. The whole, the whole thing took like 36 hours of sailing along the coast to try and get into this little bay. And it took about 45 seconds for them to throw the food over. And then that was it. I was already leaving. So Holy was, crap. Uh, Hopefully it, it was loaded. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, they, they, they pulled right up next to me oh. and it was just like a chunk, chunk, chunk. Cause the, the weather is really bad down there. You know, I was, I was wearing, I had my ski goggles on cause the hail storms were, were just kind of coming through and, you know, it was doubtful whether or not I was even going to make it in there or if those guys were going to come out, but everything sort of worked like clockwork. And it actually, it really had to, because I, in my sort of frail uh, state of mind, I was making some pretty poor choices, um, you know, oh, wow. for, for about three or four days sailing towards the Falklands. I'm thinking, all right, I'm getting all this food. This is going to be great. And so I ate the last bits of anything I had on board. And when I actually was at the Falklands, I think I only had like two bags of rice. And there was, besides me coming to the Falklands, there was a pretty massive storm system as well. And had I, arrived there you know who knows 12 or 24 hours later i may have been blown away from the island and it could have been a while to get back so you know hindsight is 2020 but don't uh don't count on anything until you've actually got it in your hand i'll I'll tell you that for a little advice oh i like that that's a good that's a good quote i'm gonna i actually write down a lot of quotes from interviews and keep them on my kind of my wall so i'm gonna write that one down that's very good. <laughs> um, so, I mean, this might be a stupid question, uh, but is there is there the ability to fish while you're sailing, or is that just not? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, I mean, I I was fishing in the the North and South Atlantic uh, most times, you know, more in the tropics and stuff, um, and the mid ocean. But once I got to the Southern Ocean, I found you know outside of being near land like New Zealand and going over their sort of shelves and stuff. I wasn't catching anything and there were, you know, literally days the, the lures were out and I would change them up. Plus the albatross and the other seabirds, they, they're big. And if they get your lure, they, their beaks can just destroy them. And so, you know, I, after, after enough time went, I was just, you know, there was just nothing I was going to catch. And I, 
initially that was the plan. It was like, all right, if I can just make it to the Atlantic, then I can just start catching fish. But it's just, that's a pipe dream. I mean, unless you're prepared to sit and float and, you know, for days, um, you know, that's, that's usually the only time where you're actually going to attract the fish because anything that's just floating in the sea, it doesn't take long before things start to come and investigate. You know, the, the bottom of the boat was covered with barnacles and all sorts of stuff. So the fish will come in, but you know, I got to keep moving. And so, you know, it was just one of those things where, again, I just couldn't count on it. So I had to pull the trigger, um, and you know, it was reluctant, but of all the the goals that I had, I, that was the one that I was totally prepared to just, okay, that's fine. I, I'll take a little assistance. I need it. So that was okay. Yeah, definitely. And that's actually a, a really cool story and sounds like a logistical nightmare. So I'm sure you're able to communicate pretty well on the boat because coordinating that with another boat in another country and, and what you needed and hopefully it was good food too so it's dang a lot going on there so that's that's impressive to me to figure all that out so oh it was it was the greatest ham sandwich i <laughs> ever had in my life you know you could i i i will never like i could go to the fanciest restaurant in the planet and and order the most expensive ham sandwich and it'll never taste as good as that one. Oh, absolutely not never you know that's that's good eating right there man that's awesome <laughs> absolutely. so so speaking of that um you know i also heard that you you had to rely on rainwater for a while is that true and, and if so what what what'd you have to do what was that like yeah you know and it's it's kind of interesting uh you know i've been talking to a few people about this whole situation so initially i was planning on not taking a water maker with me and I had the capability to hold 100 gallons of fresh water. And, you know, a lot of these guys that did this back in the 60s before, you know, reverse osmosis, you know, desalinators, that's what they would do. They'd, they'd load a whole bunch of water and it became the precious, you know, precious cargo. And one of my friends smartly talked me out of that. And he said, listen, just take one of these emergency pump ones. They make like a gallon of fresh water an hour. You just got to pump it yourself. And so... I took one and, you know, I left, I had my hundred gallons soon after getting into the Indian ocean, maybe like four or 500 miles past Africa. Uh, I started to run pretty low on my, my fresh water supply, you know, when I was trying to catch rainwater before, and I, I got lucky a few times here and there, but you know, when you're trying to do that on a sailboat, there's a few different techniques, but you really need the rain to you know it has to last long enough to wash the salt off the sails and then keep raining and it also can't be so windy and wavy that salt water is getting splashed into it so it, it takes kind of like the perfect conditions to be able to collect it and so i i had been a little bit irresponsible with how much i was using and i wasn't being super hardcore in collecting it and it was because i had this water maker and i I pull the water maker out eventually because, you know, stocks are getting low and it only produced maybe 20 gallons before it exploded. And, you know, oh, no. it's something where like, I, I could still hear the crack of, of the thing. I tried to fix it a bunch of times. And, you know, the, the problem is there's a lot of pressure that's involved with desalinating water. And I could just I never could get past that. And so. You know, from that point on, with, you know, about 20 gallons of fresh water left on the boat, I had to collect rainwater the rest of the rest of the trip. And the interesting thing that I've sort of been slowly figuring out is I don't think I would have ever gotten into that situation or, or gotten that low with fresh water if I wouldn't have brought that water pump. Does that make sense? There's got to be a psychological term or, or phenomenon for that because it's it, you see that in a lot of ways like when people know something's recyclable they'll they'll use a lot more of it so it kind of you know is a wash when it comes to like the environmental purpose of the recycling or if people drive an electric car they'll just drive a lot more and so it really you know what i mean there's no benefit so it, it's almost like when you know you've got this safety net you kind of you just kind of get lazy with other things i totally get that right yeah, almost like a, it was like this false sense of security that I had. 
And again, I'm not I'm not blaming the water maker because it's it was my fault. I was the one who was making the choices leading up to that. But yeah, it's sort of one of those things where when I look back on it, you know, if I didn't have that, I would have treated every drop of that fresh water up until that point very differently. And, you know, I it's just one of those things where, you know, I would never go out, you know, on another big long trip like that without a water pump, but I wouldn't count on it the way I had um, on this last trip. But, you know, it wasn't all bad because, you know, once I had to collect every last drop I could get, you know, it changed what a rainy day was to me. You know, normally on a sailboat, you're out there at sea, it starts raining and you're sort of like, ah, you got to always wear your foul weather gear. It gets damp. It gets all this. And it's, you know, you're usually trying to hide from the rain. Not me. When it was raining, I was up there dancing around, trying to collect every little last thing and just loving it. Like I, I, you know, if I saw a squall or a rain cloud coming, I was changing the course and heading right for it and getting ready. And, you know, it got really, it got pretty sketchy. I I think the the lowest I ever had on there was just a, a little more than two gallons of fresh water. But, you know, slowly but surely I was able to keep that stock going. And but it it wasn't until I reached the equator headed north that I finally filled the tanks in this massive rain squall that that went on for hours. And I totally topped everything back up. But, you know, for a good 100, 150 days, it was uh, it was basically, you know, I think I have a week's worth left now. I hope I get some more rain and and sort of just living, you know, day to day on it. Good hundred and hundred and fifty days. Jeez, I thought I thought you were gonna say miles. You said days. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> six months nearly. I mean, like, what? Are you, three, four, five months? Are you kidding me? That's crazy to just be to be literally be surrounded by water and not be able to drink any of it. Um, yeah, not even. Uh, and I, you know, I was sort of messing around a little bit with, um, you know putting salt water in the kettle and trying to, you know, use the steam and evaporate that. But boy, when the boat's moving around and pitching and all that sort of stuff, it's, it's pretty difficult at best. But, uh, I think probably one of the low points was, um, I have two, two sort of 35 gallon tanks that are in the bilge. So they're in the very bottom of the boat. You lift up these floor hatches and, um, one tank had, you know, maybe 10 gallons in it, but the other one was low enough where, you know, the little, the little hose couldn't suck it up to the sink anymore. And I remember having a a, a length of little plastic hose and I sort of stuck it in there like a big straw and I was just slurping it out. And that's, that's, you know, that's got the crud in the bottom of the, in the bottom of the tank and everything. It didn't taste very good, but I was like, you know, I gotta, I have to use every last little bit that I have. What an adventure. So many things you don't even really think about either, you know? So you obviously that's such a cool concept too. You mentioned like now looking forward to the rainy days. That's almost, it feels like a life lesson in there somewhere. Like, you know, used to hate these hard times or these rainy days or these, you know, off days, but now I, I was excited about them. That sounds, I don't know. That sounds like a lesson. Uh, I don't know how to do that in my life today, but find ways I to know. make the rainy days useful. If we could, if we could, if I could figure out a way to do that with all the other problems that, you know, normally come up <laughs> in life, I'd, I'd probably be a millionaire. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Well, you, you, I'm sure there's a lot of millionaires listening to this wishing they were you. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so was there anything you, you missed about kind of normal life? Maybe you didn't, forgot to bring it, didn't bring it that you were really looking forward to. I know you had, you know, a lot of things, of course, food and coffee and, and, and we all obviously had a greater appreciation for water, but anything that you wish you would have brought or guilty pleasure that, that you were really looking forward to? Uh, well, I mean, you know, obviously constantly fantasizing about seeing girls again and, and, <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, I, it was, it was sort of, um, it was sort of interesting how, you know, first thing that runs out is, you know, like fresh food, like bacon and eggs. And then you start to miss those. And then the chocolate runs out and then you start to miss that. And so, you know, slowly on this trip and again, 
through totally my own fault of, of the lack of provisioning and stuff. I was sort of watching, you know, all these little treats slowly disappear from my life, you know, down to the point where, uh, and I, I use food for example a lot, but down to the point where it's, you know, rice for breakfast, rice for lunch and rice for dinner sort of thing. And, and yeah, I mean, that's when for me, it was, it was a huge time of sort of thinking about not only, you know, my life, but thinking about the lives of, you know, other people in the world that, that have, you know, a different sort of upbringing than, than I did. You know, I was very fortunate. I got wonderful parents that worked really hard and, and always made sure that we had what we needed and everything. And, you know, I'm out there now in the situation where, you know, there's, there's no doctors around. There's not much food. There's no access to clean water. And, you know, it's it's sort of this situation where I'm like, you know, actually, this is how the majority of the people on this planet actually grow up and live almost their entire lives. And and so it it was sort of a, a, a big eye opener for me because I had never, you know, really experienced something like true hunger. I mean, on the AT, you know, an AT through hiker never satisfied but that's through your endurance i mean you know you're still eating all the time but out there you know it was it was pretty ridiculous to to literally hear your stomach gurgle you know while you're eating rice you're sort of like wow holy cow and so you know i I don't know if i sort of went into a bit of a wormhole there but um you know it was definitely it was a huge eye-opener and so you start realizing wow i had it so good so good (laughs) took it all for granted you know oh what a great lesson too man i will say that's one of the biggest things that sticks with me today is just being hungry out on trips and just how awful it is and definitely have a lot more compassion and understanding for that now but um obviously i'm a little i'm and my wife gets on to me because i like we'll go for a day hike and i'll bring like four sandwiches and a whole (laughs) gallon of nuts you know what i mean i'm i'm yeah, a little bit paranoid about it, but I totally breaks my heart too to see people hungry, and so that's that's interesting, man. That's uh, it's great that you use it to kind of reflect on really how, like you said, a lot of the world lives. You know, we talked about kind of the isolation and 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 staying away from land and just some of the challenges. What what was it like finishing? What was it like getting to the finish line? Did did you finish in the same spot you started? Yeah, so I sailed back into to Gloucester, and you know it's always it's sort of the uh, the common joke between circumnavigators that do this is sort of like yeah I, I set sail and I I sailed you know thirty thousand miles, but I ended up right in the same exact spot. I never saw anything, <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. I don't know. There's just you have to go right back back to where you started. So, um, but yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. I you know I got within you know maybe 20 miles or so of Gloucester and the sun started setting and the wind completely dropped off. And I, I ended up floating, you know, for, for one extra night while I was out there and just totally become no sails up. I'm watching all the, the jets around, um, I think it's Logan airport and I could see lobster boats and, and my cell phone works and all that stuff and i i think throughout the night i drifted within within about eight miles or five miles of the harbor and yeah the next morning you know a little bit of wind picked up um and basically one of one of the issues we had is that the day that i ended up in gloucester was a a really busy day they have you know all these different summer events there it was i think it was june 30th so you might have the greasy pole and the blessing of the fleet Long story short, the the harbor master was not really all that happy or excited about some some loony who had been out on the on the ocean for oh nine gosh. months coming in, and so basically he said, you know, we can use the the harbor master dock between 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. If I can't make it in there by then, then you know, got to just go anchor somewhere else. And so my uncle Bill, my dad, all of a they all came out and. Um, they brought some fuel because I had run out of fuel, you know, months before. And I ended up sort of motor sailing the last, the last like five miles in um, so that we could get in there. But it was great. I mean, you know, as soon as I passed the break wall, there's cannons going off and the Coast Guard had one of their boats 
was there with a big like 60 foot you know uh water cannon on the front and celebrating and, you you know yeah that yeah yeah awesome. i mean it's a it's a it's a pretty big deal as far as you know the the sailing community you know i mean glosser is mostly a fishing community obviously but uh you know, had I chosen to, you know, leave from Annapolis or Newport, Rhode Island or something like that, it would have probably been, you know, lots and lots of boats out there. But, uh, you know, I had my ties to Gloucester. And so there were probably, you know, a dozen boats. And there was actually one guy who had rowed this one little tiny wooden boat out um, all the way to the break wall, I don't know, maybe a mile or two. And uh, I tipped my hat to him because he was the only one who wasn't on a powerboat. And uh, he said he actually teared up when I did that. I got to talk to him oh, afterwards. Wow. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. So cool. But um, every, nobody hopped on board. I thought, you know, everybody's going to come on board because it's another couple miles to get to the Harbor Master's dock. And I think everybody figured it was probably a pretty bad scene down below. But it was actually... I'd spent hours cleaning because I knew people were going to go on the boat. But uh, so we motor all the way in and and then I just had to dock the boat, which I was pretty nervous about because I hadn't hadn't had any practice for a long time. Plus, there were like 50 people on the dock. And, you know, I get in there and it's just hugs all around and shaky legs and all that. But it was it was amazing. And, you know, I mean, I it's it's one of those things where it's it's impossible to describe exactly how it feels because you know you're finally reunited with all these people you've been thinking about for so long and all that and you also have that that feeling again of of accomplishing this goal that you set out to do and and all that but there's also you know there's that tiny thing in the back of your head that's sort of saying well okay what's next or what am i going to do now you know there's there's always that it's always back there but it was it was one of the most amazing days uh, I'm sure I'll ever have in my life. I, I mean, it sounds like the ending of a movie. Um, and I, and I didn't mean, I, and I totally would not be surprised to be a huge sort of event around you entering. I just didn't know if it was just your dad and your uncle there and you did kind of kept it quiet or there was going to be this celebration. I know a lot of times for adventures, it can be pretty anticlimactic to get to where you're going yeah, because no one cares. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, you just biked across country or you just sailed around the world. No one, you know, no one knows that. And so it's uh, that's awesome that you got to celebrate in such a big way. And yeah, that sounds like one of the greatest days you could possibly have. When you finished your your epic uh, bike from Alaska down to Florida, how many were there? Were there a pretty pretty big group of people? I, I mean, I know the story about you know some some other bikers started joining you and stuff, but yep, it was other it was pretty joined. big. Wasn't it? it was it was funny because you know it was in Central Florida, busy Orlando, and like you know there's all these people and. <laughs> There's cars and people going to Disney World and, and street traffic and you know, or traffic lights. You just got to still be on your game. And we finally get into the neighborhood. And yeah, my family's there. My buddy's family's there. Some friends. And we had a big barbecue. But yeah, I'd say 20, 30 people, but all family. And uh, nice. But, you know, it was in a little tiny cul-de-sac. So people were like, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> and so we had to go around explaining. Right, right. It was like, oh, they're, they're biking here. But yeah, nothing. Nothing crazy because, you know, you know, a couple months, two to three months is so different than almost literally, you know, what are you, nine, ten months you were gone? Uh, nine months. So nine I months. think almost nine months exactly. Yeah. Holy cow, man. Well, and I, I think when, when Sail Magazine, when, when Sail Magazine did a, a short little piece on it, um, I think the title of it was like Michigan Man Circumnavigates on the Quiet. And I, I think a lot of that is just, Cause I wasn't seeking out any sponsorship. So, you know, when, when you take on sponsors and all that stuff, obviously the, the name of the game is to get the word out, to draw the attention and stuff. And I, you know, to be honest, I, I had such, uh, low odds of actually being successful in this journey. I mean, almost anybody would, you know, um, that I, I wasn't, I wasn't like, I'm going to go do this and, yeah and all that stuff and you know looking back now that i you know that i made it i probably probably should have but you know hindsight again 2020 <laughs> oh man i 
um, you know, great, you know, sponsorships and stuff is great. And I, we have a lot of people obviously on the show that, that have to do that or choose that route. And that's wonderful because there's a lot of great companies that want to sponsor and they're excited to be involved knowing they might not ever get the chance to people that work there, but they love supporting adventures like this. But the fact that you did yeah. it without any of that is pretty damn impressive. If you ask me, man, that's awesome. You save the money, you put in the time, you you chose a boat that a lot of people wouldn't, and like you said, you freaking made it happen, and that is that is definitely worth celebrating. And so, so you mentioned a few times, um, you know, it's in the back of your mind. What's next? Uh, you know, what what has the last few years been like? Just just reeling from this experience because I'm sure it felt like a decade out there. You know how it is when you're out there, and every day is just so different than what normal life was before, you know, how has it been at readjusting and also what is kind of rolling around in your head now? And, and obviously you can talk about your book too. We'd love to share that. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, physically, um, you know, it it probably took me two weeks to get sort of my land legs back. (laughs) I I was, I was bumping things left, right and center. And, um, but, you know, mentally, I it was it was a, a little bit odd. You know, I got a bit overwhelmed by sort of bigger crowds of people. Um, I definitely loved being, you know, in a small group and stuff. But I started doing a few presentations, you know, pretty quickly, I think within about two weeks of, of returning. And I sort of found that I had a, a pretty good knack from you know, I think my past jobs and stuff where I have to do a lot of sort of presenting awards and things like that. But um, I think the story really told itself and and all the connections and stuff that I had made through the bitter end and stuff all all really helped to line up a bunch of them. And so I was able to do quite a few presentations and 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 that was so fun because it's, you know, you get that same sort of adrenaline boost when you're up on stage. But, you know, that was definitely mixed in with a lot of the post-adventure depression, like really, really bad. And it was really interesting because I was listening to the podcasts. Um, I don't know which one it was, but you guys were talking about that. And that's the first time I've ever heard anybody else talk about it. And I was thinking to myself, holy cow. All right. It's it wasn't just me. And, you know, yeah, that was actually with the AT hike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was he was on the trail uh, in 2012, I think. And I don't I didn't didn't recognize his trail name. Uh, my trail name was Geronimo. But, you know, you never know. Sometimes there your best friend could be walking one day behind you for the entire trip. But, exactly. Yep. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I was uh, I was pretty down you know it was either i was super duper excited about you know presenting i was on the road headed to this place or that place and then i would just crash and be like oh my gosh what is this place you know i'd I'd walk into a grocery store and stare and you know i call that the hurt locker moment because there's that scene where he's like back from you know being at war and all that at the end staring and i you know i'm looking at all his food and people are buzzing around me and they they call their cell phones and i'm just sort of there big scraggly beard you know and and i'm just thinking to myself what what happened to my world and so that that you know i've i've slowly been able to come to grips and and you know the longer you get back into society the the more normal it becomes and everything but um you know it it was it was one of those things where i i sort of lost my purpose in a lot of ways but um you know it's it's been um it's been pretty cool for probably the last year or so you know i i was able to sail back down to the caribbean and that was where i was able to write the book i i had some some great um advice given to me from another author a guy john u bacon who wrote uh the, the great Halifax explosion amongst other, you know, bestsellers and such. And, um, so I went down there and buckled down and, you know, cranked out four hours every single day. And after enough months went by, I had the book and, you know, I, I tried to get it published through a company and all that. And that was, that was pretty tough. Cause it's a, uh, a bit of a niche audience right there with the whole sailing thing. And, uh, but eventually I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to put it out through Amazon, you know, so it's as an ebook. And then, you know, eventually I'm sure I'll do an audio book. But um, 
yeah it's 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 been great you know i i get you know emails and and stuff and people talk about how they they love reading it and i've actually been able to walk on to more than one boat and they've actually already got it and i couldn't that was one of the coolest things in the world that oh, that man that's really cool was one of my goals yeah to to walk in and see it you know on a shelf with some of those other books that i used to read that inspired me to do it and you know i actually was signing a book today so i don't care if i sell another one but i've already you know i've gotten to do that so it was all well worth it Man, it's going to continue to influence people. And, you know, it, it sometimes it just feels like that post-adventure depression is, it's almost like a rite of passage, almost like you have to go through that too. It's its really bizarre, but the more I talk about it and the more I hear others, it just seems like it starts coming out from everybody I've ever known that adventures. It's like, oh yeah, I dealt with that too. And it's uh it's so relatable too. And so, you know, a lot of folks will just then write a book to help process that. And, and I don't know, I definitely feel that too, but man, that's uh that's so cool to hear that you're on the shelves of those folks influencing, you know, God knows how many youngsters all around the world that find that book somewhere, start reading it and like, Holy cow, this is amazing. That's it'll, and it'll continue to live on for years and years to come. You know, it's going to be on, people are going to come across it and buy it, of course. So that's, that's really exciting. But wow, Jerome, I, you know, you mentioned an audiobook, man. You got to. You got a great voice, great storyteller. You obviously went through it also. Telling it from your voice would be pretty incredible, too. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think if I, if I can slice some time out and get the, the proper equipment to, uh, to do it, uh, then I, I'll be able to, to reread it and everything. So, you know, hopefully get there. But uh, who knows? We, I'm on the verge of, of maybe coming up with the next adventure but uh with with the world going through what it's going through right now uh things are a little up in the air to say the least so we'll just have to see how things play out yeah yeah absolutely and it's just it's a it's a before and after world with this being a very big pivotal moment so it's it's a lot of change happening all over the place um but jerome man i I, i'd Please keep us updated if you do something else. Tell us. We'd love to have you on. This was awesome. I appreciate you being on, man. I'll, I'll let you know when it comes out. And um, yeah, thank you so much for setting this up. Hey, my my pleasure. And we, we got to get you over that fear of the water. Thank you so much, Mason. I really appreciate it. I know you got your busy. So I'll uh, we'll keep in touch, my friend. All right, man. We'll talk soon. See ya. Yep. First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.